Good morning again. All right, so we started this morning uh, making the case or the argument uh, for as to why the Lord Jesus died on the cross for us. We considered, first of all, the concept of sin, and within the concepts of, of sin, we sort of looked at uh, the definition as we found in First John, and we demonstrated that we all failed to measure up to the standard. We all measure, fail to measure up to, to the Lord, regardless of how we may compare with others. We talked about the uh, root of sin being pride. We considered Lucifer, Lucifer's rebellion along with one-third of the angelic hosts and how pride was at the core of the sin that Adam and Eve uh, committed. And then we also considered the fact of imputation and how the sin nature has been imputed to every single one of us. Thus, we are all guilty before God. We fail to measure up to that standard. I want to now talk about the corruption of sin. Um, as we considered the inherited sin nature that we possess, that brings us to another theological term that, it's imp- that is important for us to understand. And that term is depravity. Depravity, which essentially means that every facet of human nature has been polluted, defiled, contaminated by sin. Sin's corruption, we learn from Scripture, is complete. Consider, for example, what Jeremiah 17.9 says of the human nature. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah was referring to the capacity all of us have to function in rebellion against Almighty God. You remember that Paul himself said of himself in Romans 8.17, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's true of all of us. For you remember what Paul himself said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, where he said, And you, who? Us. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible clearly declares that we are spiritually contaminated in our, according to Ephesians 2, 3, by nature, listen, By nature, children of wrath. Hmm. By nature, essentially what scripture is teaching us is that by nature, we are destined to incur God's wrath. Because depravity also means that there's nothing within us to commend us to God. So we have both the fact that we have a sinful nature and that by virtue of having that sinful nature, there's nothing within us 
to commend us to God. We are totally corrupted. We are totally depraved. Now we'll, we'll define that a little bit as we move forward so that we don't misunderstand what the, the, the doctrine of depravity teaches. As I mentioned previously during our earlier meeting, we never have to teach our ch- children how to sin. They naturally do that as they, their knowledge and their opportunities increase. It's just a matter of time before that sinful nature starts acting out. Because we are, by nature, sinners. In fact, the capacity for sin is present when the child is even developing in the mother's womb. Remember again what David said. That in sin, in, uh, you know, he was conceived in sin. It's just a matter of time before it starts acting out. Showing itself for what it is. Now, this is what the Bible calls our depravity or total corruption by sin. Now, people often tend to object to that particular doctrine. In part because they feel that one is lumping them in with the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. But it does mean that we have the capacity when it comes to sin. Not everybody acts out to the capacity that they can. But the potential, the capacity is there. And people on the other hand console themselves about human nature by saying things like, well, Hitler, and this is, you know, I I thought about this and and, and when I've, first was working on, on the message. It, I hadn't thought about it in this way till, till, till it came down to putting it on, on paper. But you often hear people, and for crying out loud, for, for that matter, we might say it ourselves, we think of people like Hitler as animals. And we say Hitler was an animal. And somehow we tend to console ourselves because there's somebody who is far more wicked than we are. The reality is that's not the truth. Hitler was not an animal. Hitler was a human being. Who simply gave full expression of his depraved nature. So you see to the capacity of which we can go. Or the potential that we have to become something that we would perhaps refer to as an animal. He was simply fulfilling the potential that he had by the nature that he possessed. That's what total depravity. It, we, our, it, our being in its entirety is, is contaminated. It's polluted by sin. It's touched by sin. We're not saying when you are, when we, you know, when we tell somebody that you are depraved, we're not saying that you're as bad as you can be. We're simply saying that your entire nature is Polluted, contaminated, touched by sin. And that you do have the capacity to express that nature. All, you know, in, in various degrees. Which is what we see and experience every single day. So you recall that God had told Adam and Eve that on the day that they ate from the tree that he commanded them not to eat, they would die. Now we know that they died spiritually that same day at that very moment 
but that they died physically over time. In our sinful condition, the human race has been cut off from its life source. And it's dead. As we were talking after the meeting this morning, it's not a question of what sin you committed when. It's the fact that you are already born dead. Because you have been cut off from the time of conception, from the life source. You're separated, alienated from God. And the proof that we are dead spiritually is the fact that we will die physically someday. Now the Bible says that all of us will die in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.22, just as Adam himself died. So to put it another way, your birth certificate is your death certificate. Because the wages of sin is death. Now, sin expresses itself in both personal and corporate ways. Now, we've talked about the personal expression of sin, of which we are all guilty, because we've inherited a nature and have a disposition to sin. But we also, and when we think of our country today, when we think of the direction our nation is going in, when we think of the things that we now tolerate for the sake of whatever, political correctness or whatever we want to uh, call it or, or, or name it. But sin can also be collective. As when an entire nation or group of people systematically participates in and supports evil. I mean, think of where we are as a nation today. The law of the land says that it is okay to take human life. And we do, through abortions, about three million a year. We say it is okay for a man to marry a man and have sex with him. We say it's okay for a woman to marry a woman and have sex with her. We say it's okay for men to become women from a physical standpoint and Vice versa. And God forbid if we say anything against those things, because now we are the ones persecuted, which is what Scripture says would happen anyway, didn't it? But the issue I'm getting to is the fact that we collectively, as a nation, systematically end up participating in supporting evil. Another example is, for example, slavery. We see in the Bible that God judged whole groups, nations, for the sins they practiced. Do we think we're exempt? Are we that proud? I mean, I read, you know, as you read through the Old Testament and you read how God has dealt with Israel and other nations. The handwriting's on the wall. It's coming. And in fact, many would argue we're there. As a nation, we will, many evangelical Christians, conservative Christians, believe 
wholeheartedly that God at this point has simply removed, you know, wiped his hands of what this nation collectively has become. And it all started with a rejection of God. It all started with removing prayer from the classroom. And do you know that in America the most dangerous place for a young person is the university? Because it is there where everything that he may have believed is going to be challenged and most likely they'll walk away from everything that they had held dear when they went in. Can you believe it? In America, the two most dangerous places for young people are the womb and the school. What does that say about us? And what does that say about what is coming? And what does that say about our responsibility to be faithful to what we have been called to, and that is the Great Commission? We spend resources and time on things that at the end of the day are not what God wills for us as a church. How do we know that? Because when people ask simple questions, we don't even have an answer for the most basic things. Now, when I say collectively, that doesn't necessarily mean that every person in that group was guilty of the particular sin. But that the group was so characterized by and corrupted by the sin that the people came under judgment collectively. Sin is also collective in the sense that the entire creation has been affected by sin. So we've considered the concept, we've considered the corruption. Now let's talk about the consequences. We're getting to the good news. It's coming. The Bible is very clear about the consequences of sin. Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now, to be clear, in the Bible, death never means the cessation of existence. It means separation. Okay? We don't cease. Man wishes he would cease of being. That's not the case. It means separation. Now the Bible talks about three kinds of separation, all of which come about as a consequence to sin. So the first one, One type of death is the spiritual death, which we've talked about some this morning already. It's the one we read about in Ephesians chapter 2. Spiritual death is separation from the life of God, which we have all experienced. For we were born spiritually dead, alienated from God. The first thing Adam and Eve did after they sinned was what? To hide from God. Why? Because their fellowship with him was severed. Genesis 3, 8 through 10. All of us, as a consequence, are born spiritually dead. So we have all experienced spiritual death. 
The second manifestation of death, the one that we're most familiar with, is physical death, which is essentially the separation of the soul and spirit from the body. The proof that we're all sinners, what? We all die. So that's the second. There's a third kind of death in Scripture, which is eternal death, or separation from God. Listen to me. For eternity, in a place of punishment and suffering called hell. (gasps) Yes. We can't even conceive. You know why? Because we've never experienced that kind of separation. Spiritual death can be reversed by salvation. And physical death will be reversed by resurrection. But there's no reversal. Listen to me. There is no reversal of eternal death. The horror of eternal death is total separation from God. Fire and brimstone, yes. But hell is hell because of the permanent, forever separation. Never, never to be reversed. Wow. In hell, there is no presence of God. And by that, I simply mean that There is no righteous provision of his goodness. God is omnipresent. But in hell there is no righteous provision of his goodness. There is that permanent, eternal separation. Today we experience God's righteous provision of his goodness, right? It rains on the wicked and it rains on the saints. The sun rises for the benefit of the wicked and for the benefit of... But in hell, it's forever separation from God. Think about this. In hell, there is no experience of the goodness of God. In every sense of the word. Can you imagine? I mean... You have to somewhat imagine but without fully conceiving. We have been spared of that by the good news we'll share in a moment. There is nothing, listen to me, in hell, there is nothing to balance or temper the presence of pure evil hell is the worst form of bondage because people are locked in their sin forever in hell the soul is locked away in total evil in the total absence of God's goodness 
That is hell. I also want to mention, before we get to the cure, I also want to mention another consequence of sin, which is the impact on the whole of creation. Paul teaches in Romans 8 that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Romans 8.21 When Jesus comes to complete our redemption, all of creation, what we call nature, was affected by sin. The reason we have disturbances and destructiveness of nature is that sin has spoiled God's creation. But God's grace today, God's grace keeps sin from having total domination in nature. But even the natural world, as Paul says, groans under the weight of sin. Now, there's clearly a direct relationship between man and nature. When God created Adam, you recall that he put him in the Garden of Eden, I quote, to work it and keep it. Genesis 2.15. Now, when Adam sinned, God cursed the ground as one of the consequences. In Genesis 3.17 through 18 it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. <laughs> as soon as they sinned, all of a sudden, suddenly nothing grew right anymore. Thorns and thistles appeared. Sin spoiled every part of God's good creation. So we've considered the concept We have considered the consequences. We have considered the corruption. Now, let's consider the cure. Why did he die? Sin. Why did he have to die? Is the next question I would ask. Why did he have to die? Well, let's consider that. We would clearly say that a terrible disease without a cure is bad news. But the news concerning a cure for a disease, we should certainly consider good news. Listen, God has the remedy for this scourge which is found in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Atonement, and we'll sort of go into define a bit what I mean by that, is necessary. Atonement for sin is necessary. And we're going to consider a few passages of Scripture in both the Old and New Testament to understand why. But before we get to that, think about this. When we, 
When a disease is ravaging your body, and we, we're praying for, for a saint here who is who's experiencing at this time cancer. As we think of that, a disease is ravaging that person's body. I am certain that that person doesn't want their doctor to skip over that. And send her away. Why? Because she understands the ultimate consequence of skipping that. Which is why? Death. Disease demands a cure because it's not going to go away on its own. You know what? Most, most people I talk to really don't know what to believe. They tend to believe what they, their opinions about things change as often as they have a conversation with anybody about the subject. Right? The latest person to make the point has now influenced their belief. But that's up to change in the next 10 or 15 minutes. Most people that I talk to don't really want to necessarily reject or deny the existence of God. They just simply don't know what to do with Him. It is up to us to give them an understanding without sending them away. Why? Because we know what the consequence is. What? Death. A truly caring doctor will insist that a person undergo the cure, no matter what its demands, because the doctor knows the awful consequences of not dealing with the problem. How many of us have had a health issue that we know has been there, but have refused to deal with it by refusing to go to the doctor because we know what the doctor's going to say? And we pretend, and pretend, and pretend until we can no longer pretend. That's why I think back to the Philippian jailer. He might have pretended and pretended till at some point he realized his situation was so grave that he had no other choice but to ask the apostle, Sir, <laughs> what must I do? It was necessary that sin be atoned for because God is too holy and just to ignore sin and too loving to let us plunge headlong into judgment and hell. And Christ is the only one who could pay the, table, the terrible price that sin demanded. Simply saying, I'm sorry, doesn't atone for sin. Sin must be addressed in a way that is acceptable to the one who has been offended. Now think about this. Well, we're going to look at a few passages in the Old Testament to help us give us some understanding. But think about this for a moment, this illustration. Suppose I borrowed a car from Glenn. 
and I smashed it into a pole. I come back to Glenn's uh, house with a car. Barely making it, hand him his keys, and apologize for the damage. What do you think Glenn is going to say? I mean, I'm sure he's gracious enough to appreciate the fact that I understand what I've done and that I am somewhat uh, sorry for the fact that it has happened. But at some point, Glenn is going to say, okay, I accept your apology, but now let's talk about your insurance. Why? Because the apology alone doesn't do it. Something else is required to make it right. It's the same when we talk about salvation. Atonement is paying what must be paid to settle the claim because damage has been done. Again, Scripture says all have sinned. Damage has been done. We have sinned against God Almighty. We are guilty. If it's going to be made right, atonement must be made. But who and why? Him. Let me ask you something. Could you atone for me? Could any of you atone for me? Why? Could I atone for any of you? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> no. Why? I have my own claim to settle. So do you. And if you try to settle your claim on your own, you will never be done settling. That's why it's forever. You understand? So one who could had to be the one to settle. Who? Oh, it's fascinating. I'm telling you. Sin is an attack on the character of God. And therefore it must be atoned by a payment that is acceptable to him. <laughs> Not to us. Not what we deem should be acceptable to him. Which is what religion is, right? Why do people practice religion? They are attempting to atone. They're working their way into heaven while circumventing what God actually demands in order to be made right with God. That is religion. That is the essence of religion. And that's why Christianity, in that sense, is not a religion. The only payment that God ever accepted for sin, listen, is death. God told Adam concerning the fruit of the forbidden uh, tree. 
in that in the day that you eat from it you will surely die and the bible says in nahum 1:3 the lord will surely by no means clear the guilty now think about this since death penalty since that is what is required would be very bad news for us except for one exciting truth. Now listen, this is where it all changes. Although God didn't lessen the penalty for sin, listen, He did allow a substitute to bear the penalty for guilty sinners. Isn't that amazing? We offended Almighty God, yet He's the one who makes the provision to make us right with Him. Do you understand that there's absolutely nothing that you either do or contribute to in making yourself right with God? Salvation, Scripture says, is of the Lord. It is God who made provision so that you might be made right with him. It is he who took the only step that could be taken to reconcile you to himself. Oh, man. You now understand why pride is so... A substitute takes the place of and fulfills the responsibilities of the individual he replaces. My substitute, listen to me, the Lord Jesus Christ took my place and fulfilled the responsibilities That were mine. Settling the claim. He made propitiation. Now, the principle of substitution also goes back to the beginning. Adam and Eve have uh, sinned. Now, you recall that God responded by slaying an animal to clothe them. Now, Adam and Eve had their own substitute in mind. Their substitute was a fig leaf substitute. But that was completely unacceptable to God. The only sacrifice that he accepts, according to Scripture, and that will properly atone for sin, is the shedding of blood. God's economy has always operated that way. Let me remind you of Leviticus 17.11. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have, don't you love that? I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. But if not my blood for you or your blood for me, then whose blood? Can you just picture the John the Baptist 
seeing Jesus coming and saying, Behold. Behold what? The substitute. The Lamb of God. Blood, according to Scripture, is the only means of atonement that satisfies God's righteous retribution against sin. Before the coming of Christ, we know from the sacrificial system that God accepted the sacrificial animals as a substitute for man's blood. No sinner ever dared approach God and seek forgiveness without an acceptable substitute. That's precisely why the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, what? There is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sin. When Jesus came, listen. When Jesus came, the sacrificial system came to an end. Why? Because he became the final sacrifice. That's it. There's no greater sacrifice. There is no need for any other sacrifice. We know that sin must be paid for. That's clear. And that the penalty of sin is death. That's clear. We deserved, listen to me, we deserved death and judgment. Why? We're guilty. But Jesus Christ took our place by becoming our substitute and bearing the penalty for the guilt we had incurred. Why do we come at 9 a.m. to celebrate the supper? For that reason. And as our brother shares The entire meeting is about us communicating to God our gratitude for what? For what? Reconciliation. Justification. Redemption. By whom? The only one who could. Why? He had no claim to settle. He was what? Perfect, holy, pure. A lamb without blemish or spot. Yet he took our guilt and on the cross incurred the penalty of our debt. You will now, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will now spend your forever in the presence of Almighty God worshiping in awe day after day Year after year, millennia after millennia, because a substitute came and paid the price for you. And think about heaven. We will be in heaven for a trillion years. And the day after that trillionth year, it will be as if we just arrived. But of those who die without Christ, in pure evil, 
without the righteous provision of God's goodness. That is why we refer to the atonement of Christ as substitutionary. Jesus didn't die just to leave us a good example or to show us how to bear up under suffering Our guilt was transferred, imputed, imputed to him. And therefore, he took the death, the penalty, the death stroke that should have fallen on us for all of eternity. Huh? Glory, glory, glory to God. In closing, I'll tell you of an incident that I had uh, read about where one student who was in seminary was relaying this particular story, which makes the point that we're trying to make here as, it, as we talk about Jesus, our substitute. Two of his classmates had been robbed, and the police caught the robbers. The robbers were tried and sentenced. They were both condemned to a year and a half in jail for their crime. This particular individual says that when the sentence was, provi- uh, was pronounced, one of the victims, one of the individuals who had been robbed, stood up in court and said to the judge this, Your Honor, I would like to take the penalty for the gentleman who robbed me. In other words, put me in jail for a year and a half for the crime he committed. Obviously, the judge was startled and responds by saying, why in the world would you want to do something like that? Now, listen to the response. Because I want to demonstrate to these men what God did for me when Jesus took my penalty on the cross. The student was offering himself as an atonement to satisfy the demands of justice against the guilty parties. Now, obviously, this wasn't allowed. The victim did not go to jail for a year and a half, but the point was made. He was legally qualified to make the offer. Why? Because he had no crime of his own. To settle or pay for our substitute. Hmm? Can you imagine? I mean, can you see the discussion within the Godhead? As the plan of redemption is unfolding, to use an anthropomorphism in the mind of God. Father, I'll I'll pay. You see how mercy and grace play into this? By His mercy, we don't get what we deserve. By His grace, we get what we don't. Why? Because a substitute, one who had no claim to settle, settled mine by His own choice. Let's close.